Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matthew Payne. How are you doing this week, Matt? I'm good, thanks Harry. I'm really, really good. How are you? I, I suppose we should start by apologising to our uh, thousands of listeners. Sorry we couldn't be with you last week. Yep. Harry had to have a... Uh, vasectomy? A vasectomy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> No, it was uh, factors beyond our control, uh, so apologise to our regular listeners for missing out on the podcast last week, but the one that we were going to have last week, we're having this week, so that's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. So, Harry, what, what's been going on this week with you, my friend? What's been going on? Well, you know what? This week, Matt, is the Yulin Dog Meat Festival in China, and there's been a lot of press coverage about it because obviously this is a, kind of a bit of a catalyst for people's views on the dog meat trade. It seems to highlight an issue that there's an entire festival around dogs being eaten. And if anybody wants to find out more about work on ending the dog meat trade, then you can listen to our podcast. I think it was podcast, was it three or four with Lola Weber? Three, Harry. Podcast number three. Some of us know. Some of us know, and some of us don't, and that some of us would be me. But yeah, if you want to hear more about work to end the dog meat trade, then you can listen to episode three with Lola. So the Yulin Festival is horrible. The yeah. world media and activism tends to focus on the Yulin Festival because it's just this horrific festival surrounding this brutal killing of these dogs. But there's been some incredible advances over the last few months, potentially as a result of coronavirus, with China not only redefining what dogs are under Chinese law, so they used to be livestock and now they're no longer classed as livestock, so they are now companions, which means that they can't be raised or sold as food in that way. But also you've got Chinese cities that are actually already banning the sale of dog meat. And this is down to municipalities and mayors and the government themselves and the Ministry of Agriculture and also the work from local activists. So this has been a really significant year for ending the dog meat trade in China. And this might potentially be the last time that we see the Yulin Festival. I mean, you never know, but there's a distinct possibility. So there's some good news there, despite this horrible event currently taking place. But, and there's a but there. Do you want to know what the but is, Matt? I always want to know what the but is. The but is that Anytime I have been online and read the comments, and I know reading comments is a terrible idea. We've You've already made it. <laughs> we ourselves have been compared to Donald Trump yes. in comments of our podcast, and we just have a podcast. Yes. So can you imagine what happens in relation to the dog meat trade? Like, imagine if the dog meat trade had a podcast. Can you imagine the comments they would get? Let me guess, Harry. Let me guess. They're very thought out, intellectual, and non-bigoted or racist. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So you read them too? Okay. Yeah. Hold, on a Hold, on. Hold on a second. I'm just going to... I'm just... Can you still hear me? Because I'm... No, um... you do. You're stretching. Yeah, no, I'm just, um, just getting on my soapbox here. Can you hear me? <laughs> so this is the thing, right? Lord, people, put everything down. Put everything down. No, Harry. I take real issue to comments about anything to do with what's going on in the country in reference to animal welfare or, to be honest, pretty much anything else. So you have an issue of the dog meat trade, be it in China or Vietnam or Indonesia or South Korea or any of the places where this is taking place. And if you mention a country, you can guarantee that most of the comments are going to say, 
everyone in that place, they're evil murdering bastards and they should be wiped off the face of the earth. And I swear to God, if there isn't one in every two comments saying something along those lines, yeah. and it's so ridiculous. Because... We don't do anything like that in this country, do we, Harry? I mean, we don't ride around on horses and big hats and red no, coats. No, exactly. You don't. You don't go those no. fucking English people with their Sunday roasts eating no. beef. All those English people should be wiped off the face of the earth. Exactly. It doesn't happen. And I think as English people or Brits, we should be a little bit humble about how we've treated people in the world. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, well, that's a whole different you know conversation, I mean? Matt. That's a very whole different conversation. Yeah. But, but yeah. I think maybe a very different podcast as well. Yeah. But my point is that most of the good that has happened in China, for example, is as a result of Chinese activism Chinese people wanting an end to the trade, the Chinese government reclassifying dogs, mayors banning it in their cities. This is the Chinese people doing this. This isn't somebody from another country coming in there. Yes, there's been high-profile campaigns and lobbying and this kind of stuff, but the actual changes have come from the country, and the country is the one that wants to change. And for anybody on the internet to then kind of go, oh, no, they're all a bunch of evil bastards they don't deserve, is just so disingenuous. It's also bullshit. It's hugely mm. insulting and not even just a tiny bit racist or xenophobic, mm. at least, and massively unhelpful to animal welfare. Like, if I were to say to you, Matt, that you're a despicable person for what you do, or even the country that you come from, or the place that you come from, or the belief system that you have, is that likely to get a positive response from you? No, look, people will react in very different ways, but I'll tell you what will happen is a lot of the time, if you look at um, whaling in Japan, for example, a lot of that is tied in with nationalism, and there's a lot of pressure by other countries to get them to, to not do it anymore for various reasons the government reacted by associating with nationalism and sort of like, let's be traditional, let's keep our traditions. And actually what the government did and what ended up happening is people ended up digging their heels in a lot of the time to do with it. Not that they didn't even necessarily agree with it, but when you start lumping people into a group, people aren't necessarily going to react in a very positive way to that. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you're stigmatizing me. Oh, you're judging me. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. I'll change my behavior. They're not. They're going to react in a way that isn't helpful to the animals. Yeah, and absolutely agree. And it's important to separate the act or the action from the people as a group. You know, you can hate an individual trophy hunter for yeah. shooting an elephant. That's exactly. a, an individual who has purposely gone out there for vanity and self-gratification to kill an animal. Mm -hmm. And you can hate that person yeah, for what they've done. But to lump an entire country, region, group into the same box as them and want them wiped off the face of the earth or, or want rid of them or say they're all evil and that all of their motivations are exactly the same is so unhelpful. And like you said, doesn't actually help engage with anybody that you're trying to work with to try and resolve the problems because, it, like you said, it just people dig their heels in and they become more entrenched and more polarised. Mm. And that's really not the way we're going to solve any of these animal welfare problems. And if you're going to post something like that, just go away, have a cup of tea, sit down, think, and just don't. Just do something else. Just say, yeah. I don't understand it. I've never been like that. I can't relate to it at all. And anyway, you know, when, when's your Chinese Communist Party membership coming through, by the way, Harry? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thursday. 
<laughs> but I'm stepping down off of my soapbox now, having put the world to rights, yeah. or at least made some attempt to, mm. I suppose we should actually talk about this week's podcast. We should, we should. Who's our guest, man? Who's our right. guest on this week's podcast? Our guest on this week's podcast. Harry, I explained this to you last week, okay? It was two weeks ago, but whatever. Yeah, breathe, Matthew, breathe. This is going to take a while. Okay, buckle yourself in, folks. This is going to take a while for Harry to understand. Harry? Yeah? This week's guest is not Liv Tyler. No, 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 no. No. Hey everybody, ladies and gentlemen, this week's Animal Tech yeah. Podcast was Liv... What? No, it's not Liv Tyler, okay? You keep getting this mixed up. No, 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 no. Harry, 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 Harry. Yeah. The random reference from a film from the 90s is not only going to confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't even remember the title of the film. Armageddon, did it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Armageddon. Yeah. So it isn't Liv Tyler, star of Armageddon, Lord of the Rings... She's also daughter of um, Stephen Tyler, Aerosmith. That is not her, okay? We may have her on in the future. Right. Doubtful, but we may have her. (laughs) But I sent you a photo of this, Harry. On one side was Liv Tyler, okay? And on the other side was Liz Tyson. That's who we've got on this week. That is our guest this week, okay? So we've got Liz Tyson. Liz Tyson, not Liv Tyler. Liz Tyson. Do you want to know who Liz Tyson is? Would that help? I do. Do you want some background music for, uh, no, for the no, intro? No, no, that confuses people. Okay. We have Liz Tyson. Now, Liz Tyson. No, no, no. Stop, stop. Okay. I know it's Liz Tyson. It's just a good song, okay. mate. Just carry on. Okay. <laughs> right, Liz. <laughs> oh, my God. Liz will probably never call this podcast ever again. So, Liz is the programs director at Born Free in the United States. She's also the director of the Primate Sanctuary over there. And she talks to us a lot about that and her work. But Liz has had a really, really varied career. She's travelled the world basically doing lots of different roles from working in Palestine for the Palestine Animal League over there as the international director. She was also the head of the Captive Animal Protection Society, CAPS, in the UK, which is now called Freedom for Animals. She also did some work in South America. She worked for Wild Futures, an amazing primate sanctuary, in the UK, she has essentially just been involved in captivity issues and particularly to do with primates as well. And she's just an overall amazing person. I met her a few years ago while she was at the Captive Animal Protection Society and I've seen her fly all around the world do these amazing roles since. But yeah, she talks to us about her journey, what got her motivated to work with animals, but also she provides some amazing insights into her approach and what she sees as valuable, which is something that I know some of our listeners, particularly people working in animal welfare, have contacted me about and said that they found it really useful. We've even had somebody that I know who's actually taken up a project management course, Harry. Really? Wow, that's fantastic. Since listening to people talk about how important project management is, and Liz does talk about that and other skills as well. So it's an overall a fantastic episode. I'm really glad to have Liz on uh, to yeah. shine a light on her amazing work. Absolutely. She was a really lovely guest to talk to. Very, very down to earth, incredibly smart, a wealth of knowledge and experience and some really incredible stories. Like you said, you know, she's traveled the world. She's 
done and seen some incredible things and uh, had some amazing experiences. And we were really lucky that she came on and, and shared them with us. It was a really, really good chat, wasn't it? Yeah, really, really good. Should we do it? Should we get this should episode? We do it? Yeah, should Absolutely. we do it? Absolutely. This week's episode of Animal Chat with Liz Tyson. have had by any stretch an extremely varied career in animal welfare you are multifaceted you've kind of done a lot of different things in a lot of different places and Mm -hmm. you clearly have a lot of different passions so where did that come from where did this love of animals come from in the first place that's a a nice way of saying that I've had a very erratic career history Um, I've done well to be fair Liz so have I so I know exactly where you're coming from with that (laughs) Love of animals. I don't, it's something that I think I've always had since a child. And my dad always laughs at me because he said that I would, being very young, we lived kind of out in sticks and um, I would find injured animals and I'd bring them home and I'd want to rescue them and invariably they would pass away. And my dad always made fun of me that I was, when I was a kid, I was the angel of death. Um, But I think I've always, always absolutely loved animals. It's been something it's been something that's been constant throughout my entire life. And in terms of actually getting into working with them, I think like everyone, you know, I was sort of, I left college, I moved out to London because I wanted to live in a big city and be a grown up and, you know, earn my own money and all of that. And I kind of ended up working in weirdly financial PR in the city, which is a world away from what I do now. I did that for a few years and in my sort of late teens and early twenties. And I think I just got quite quickly within a few years to a point sort of thinking okay if this is this is my career and you know I'm going to be working for a very long time I wasn't particularly happy doing what I was doing I thought you know if I'm if I'm feeling unhappy with my work now when um you know I'm young I don't want to stay in this I want to look for something that's really important to me and I think I had considered as a kid I wanted to be a vet and growing up and probably not being around other people working with animals I think I always thought that if you worked with animals, you had to be a vet. That was the job you did if you worked with animals. Um, And for various reasons, I thought about it when I was a child and then it just dropped and it kind of didn't really resurface. And then as I got older, obviously I realized there's plenty of things you can do for animals, which doesn't mean you actually have to be a vet. So at that point in my early 20s, I started just looking around. And to be honest, just kind of like scattergun approach applied for pretty much anything that was to do with animals. And as luck or fate or they just didn't have very good applicants would have it, um, I got an interview for working at the Primate Keeper at what is now the Wild Futures Monkey Sanctuary down in New Cornwall, which is oh, just in a beautiful part of the country, an amazing organisation. And I think, to be honest, the only reason I was offered the job, because I hadn't, you know, I volunteered in a wildlife hospital for a number of years at weekends when I was a kid, but hadn't got any primate experience, hadn't got any professional experience, if you like. My qualifications weren't linked to animals. I was studying a law degree at the time. And I think the reason I got the job was because in the financial PR company, I was a training manager. So I had experience teaching people stuff. (laughs) And the role at the sanctuary was a dual role of education officer and primate keeper. And I think that's literally the only reason I got it. So it was pure luck that 
I landed that job and that was the beginning. That was about 16, 17 years ago. And I've been a monkey ever since. (laughs) That's really interesting. That's a very similar parallel to me as well. Uh, A couple of things there that you said absolutely resonated with me. I was in a job that I wasn't particularly fond of. I was working in a bakery at the time that was my family's business. And again, like you, I thought that if you wanted to work with animals, you needed to be a vet or a veterinary nurse. And that was pretty much it. And then when through circumstance, I managed to find my way into the career I'm in now, that just opened such incredible doors for me. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And that scattergun approach as well is something that I'm all too familiar with. (laughs) You mentioned something there, Liz, that I'm really curious about. So you were studying law, you were studying environmental law, is that right? I studied my degree for the Open University. So I Hmm. was working full time and studying and I ended up, you have to do various modules the way it works. So a normal law degree, you would Hmm. just do all your modules and then you'd, you'd get your law degree. But with the OU, you had to kind of do an extra year at the end. So I did the kind of standard qualifying law degree and then I did an extra year of environmental law in the end. So that was something which spanned actually. I, I did half of that while I was still living in London and I did half of it when I, I finished it while I was at the Monkey Sanctuary. Um, my parents at the time were delighted that I was I was studying law and then went to work with monkeys. But that was when they started really questioning my career choice. <laughs> But then you went on and got your your PhD in animal welfare law. So was that something that just seemed to you an opportunity to align two things that you, you know, something that you would spend a great deal of time studying and also tied in with the passion and the career intention? Did you see an opportunity for a career that involved animal welfare law or was it a natural progression? What was your thinking behind that? If I'm perfectly honest, the reason I did the PhD was, I mean, I, I love studying and I'm, I'm inquisitive and I like to learn things. But I think the reason I started the PhD was actually a prime example of me being incredibly stubborn. Matt knows this. So I used to work for an organization called CATS, which is now Freedom for Animals. And we were proudly a small grassroots animal rights organization, which I'm very proud of the work that the organization has done and does because it's a tiny team, but I genuinely think we've always had a massive impact. But because we were so openly animal rights stance, what it meant is that when we got around the table with, say, DEFRA or the zoo industry, then our opinion could sometimes be batted away as, you know, the kind of negative connotations which people who don't agree with our stance try to throw at sort of the animal rights movement. So, you know, radicals or extremists or over emotional or not based in science and all of this. So we started doing my, my interest in law, I kind of brought into my work with CATS, which is a campaigning organization. And we started to look at, I guess, look at kind of enforcement of the law with different industries and particularly zoos and circuses. And the reason I started my PhD was because we'd done a kind of short term project which looked at the enforcement of the Zoo Licensing Act in the UK. And what always frustrated me was that the law for animal welfare is often used as a shield, if you like, to say everything's fine. So, you know, we would go and do an undercover investigation in a zoo. We would find awful things going on. When we then went public, the zoo would hold up its license and say, we wouldn't get a license if the standards weren't good. These are bleeding heart liberals. They're just trying to shut us down and give us bad press. They don't know what they're talking about. So we're finding these places that seem to have not necessarily across the board horrible standards, but terrible things going on and the animals not being properly cared for. But then by law, 
they were all fine. So that was really what made me want to do my PhD because I was interested in that gap. So, you know, on paper, they're passing all the legislation. In practice, we're seeing that they're not. So my PhD was focused on looking at inspection reports and enforcement of the legislation and found, sure enough, that over a 10-year period, over a thousand noted breaches of the law by inspectors and literally zero instances of the correct enforcement action being taken. So that was work we were doing basically to present to DEFRA, which was evidence-based to say, you know, something needs to be done about this system. And I actually found out recently that this, I've been updating that research because I was really excited to be given the opportunity to publish my thesis with Palgrave Macmillan. So that will be published later this year. And I had to update the data and found that actually we started this conversation at CAPS with DEFRA about enforcement of zoo licensing. And it just wasn't being had before. And I found that they've updated their guidance as of January this year to make sure local authorities understand what their obligations are. So I hope that that will be the kind of long term legacy of that work. So that was a very long-winded explanation of why I did my PhD. It was for a very specific reason. Wow, that's great, though. That's amazing. First of all, I can definitely say that, Liz, I remember seeing the work that you guys did at CAPS was fantastic. Thank you. I remember, you know, everything you published, you shared, the programs and the campaigns you run, they were absolutely brilliant. And I'm really interested to know, is there something about the captivity issue that you're really drawn to and a reason why you've worked on it in various roles in your career. Obviously, with captivity, is very much in the news at the moment, the media with the recent Netflix documentary, mm-hmm. Tiger King. Is there anything in particular about captivity that you know, drew you in? Yeah, I mean, I think my initial work with the Monkey Sanctuary, the Wild Futures Monkey Sanctuary in Cornwall, you know, we were dealing with ex-pet primates, and that since then has been very close to my heart. I think at the time, prior to that, I wouldn't have had a particular stance. I disliked zoos and captivity, but I didn't have a particularly strong stance on it. You know, I was vegetarian and a quote-unquote animal lover and all those things. But I think when you start getting involved in it, more and more you see the impact. And so, you know, I can think already of a couple of the guys, the monkeys at the Monkey Sanctuary, who just absolutely consolidate and confirm the reasons why these animals should not be held captive. Um, Joey, a young capuchin who came in to the sanctuary, I think about 15 years ago, he passed away recently, but he was one of the most devastating cases of what happens when you keep an incredibly socially complex animal in solitary confinement without the right diet, without the right veterinary care. And he came in with all sorts of psychological and physical issues. You know, he was literally, his spine was so curved that his head sort of bent down towards his his belly. He used to rock backwards and forwards constantly as a stereotypy, which is a stress-related behavior in captive animals. I mean, he was a little trooper and it's incredible that he survived so long because the vets at the time were saying it might be kinder just to euthanize him because they didn't think he'd have any quality of life. And testament to the team at Wild Futures, they persevered with him and he, you know, he was really thriving at the sanctuary for many, many years and had an incredible journey to recovery. But that was where it started for me, seeing these guys simply where they shouldn't be. And then that progressed. I was lucky enough to spend a couple of years living and working in the Amazon saw the species of animal I cared for, so the woolly monkeys who I absolutely adore, saw them in the wild for the first time and that just absolutely blew my mind. So I think that foil of seeing what happens to them when they're in captivity and then being able to see where they should live was really a huge thing for me. 
And then in terms of the wider issue, what I find very interesting is, you know, a number of people have said to me in various situations, why do you focus on animals in zoos and circuses? You know, captivity is almost not benign, but of all the things we do to animals, if you think about vivisection, if you think about factory farming, if you think about fur farming, all of those things, why focus on zoos? Because, you know, they have an all right life. It's not ideal, but, you know, it's better than most situations. And for me, I feel very strongly that Zoos and keeping animals in captivity and using them for entertainment is such a frivolous use of somebody else's life. You know, an elephant will stand in this concrete enclosure in a zoo for 70 years so that people can pass by them on a Saturday afternoon for a couple of minutes. And so I think even if they're not being actively, you know, beaten or tested on or kept in these horrible cramped cages and sitting in their own excrement like animals in factory farms, I feel like if we can't convince people not to exploit animals for such pointless purposes, then I think how are we going to have those conversations about, you know, using animals for sustenance or using animals for medical research? You know, I have very strong views about both Mm. those things, but I feel that if we can't convince people, you know, they don't need to go to the zoo. Nobody needs to go to the zoo. So that I think is why, because I think animals in captivity are often overlooked by organizations because of course they're looking at the industries with the most numbers and the most suffering and that absolutely makes sense but i i have i feel very strongly about working on this issue for those reasons i agree with you completely there liz it's um because it's not as awful horrific i mean not to say that there aren't awful and horrific conditions in some zoos but by comparison to as you say vivisection and things like that there's an element in there as well of normalization. It's almost desensitizing people to animals being used in a way that is a stepping stone to something that incrementally could potentially get worse. So if you get used to animals being in captivity, then it's a shorter step for them being used for some other way and some other way. And I don't think that that's helpful at all when you look at all of the issues that we're talking about in animal welfare, because if you if you minimize one in order to maximize another, sometimes I don't see that as a helpful route at all. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you said about normalizing is really important as well. A colleague of mine, we wrote a we wrote a chapter in a book called Animal Liberation, which was um, no, sorry, Teaching Liberation. Uh, we didn't write Animal Liberation, it's more fast faster than us wrote that one. Um, so <laughs> Teaching Liberation, which was published by Lantern Books, and it was about, it's about kind of teaching animal rights. We wrote something about the educational value of zoos. And my colleague included a really important point in that chapter. Um, this is Nicola O'Brien, who is now heads up the Campaigns for Freedom for Animals. And she said, we refer to animals in zoos as zoo animals, and every child will know what that means. So we define them by the type of captivity we put them in. You ask a young child where the elephant lives, and they'd be just as likely to say the elephant lives in the zoo as the elephant lives in the forest. And I think that's Mm. really important as well, like you say, kind of normalizing the captivity of these animals till it gets to the point where it's not even questioned. They become defined by the way that we use them. Um, And I think, you know, exactly the same can be said. We we refer to farm animals. They're defined by the fact that they are farmed by us for our use. And I think that's a really interesting point, which I guess also speaks to language we use about animals. Absolutely. I think something's really interesting as well, Liz, and sorry to put you on the the spot here a little bit, but during your time at CAPS, I don't think people in the UK quite appreciate or understand the extent of the primate trade and the amount of primates that are owned. How extensive is it in the UK and how during your time did you find animals were sold and all those sort of Uh things that are involved with the trade? 
Well, I mean, the extent of it, that's been one of the biggest problems in terms of getting it banned. And and it's such a catch-22. It's incredibly contradictory because on the one hand, so the government says that they would ban a practice if they felt that the welfare issue was widespread enough. So effectively, if there were a ton of monkeys in captivity and they were suffering, then the government, over various different iterations of government, have said that they would consider legislation. They argue that there isn't enough evidence of primates being kept as pets in the UK to warrant it. So it's this odd situation whereby there is no law demanding licensing or registration, except in the case of dangerous wild animals, which encompasses some primate species. So we don't actually know. But if we go off the figures that the RSPCA have collated over a number of years and also wild futures in terms of the amount of animals they're rescuing, then they would place the figure in the thousands. I can't tell you right now exactly what the current estimate is. But one of the problems in terms of changing that legislation has been the government on the one hand say there aren't enough animals for it to be relevant. But our argument is that every single primate suffers when kept in captivity and kept as a pet. So therefore, why not apply the logic that they applied with the circus ban, which was actually there are very few circuses that are going to be impacted by this because there are only, you know, 20 odd animals left when the ban came in. And therefore, it's not going to have a huge impact on a huge number of people. So either way, we would argue the ban is relevant because if there's not that many, ban it and close the door on it. If there are many, which is what we think, but we've got no way of really tracing them because there's no obligation to report, ban it because that's a huge number of animals suffering. That kind of dodged your question a little bit about the actual numbers, but in the thousands, we don't know how many thousand. I think it's very easy to look, particularly when you see facts like there's more tigers in Texas than there are in the wild, and we think it's a problem of you know exotic animals or primates in other countries that actually within mm-hmm. the UK there is a pet trade and Caps did some fantastic work about that. I think it's becoming more prevalent and I think I think most of our podcasts have been about captivity Harry haven't they? They have they <laughs> have and one of the things that Tim Harrison said which I you said something similar Liz actually which is he said that whenever something exotic and interesting is on television, when it goes on the Jimmy Fallon show or one of these late night shows or somebody comes along with a, an amazing animal, you know absolutely that the ownership and the desire to own one of those as a pet is going to go up exponentially. And so sugar gliders come on TV and suddenly everybody has a sugar glider. Macaques come on TV and suddenly everybody has a macaque. And I yeah. think obviously that's the case certainly more in the United States than probably anywhere, but you're obviously working in the States. So is that something that you are confronting on a daily basis now? Yeah, I mean, here at the sanctuary, we just deal with primates and specific species of primates. But I mean, we get, I'm contacted, Mm. I would say probably once a month about somebody who is the same story, absolutely everywhere. Somebody's bought a monkey as a pet as a baby the monkey reaches adolescence, the sweet, needy baby becomes a very dangerous wild animal, the wild animal attacks a family member, often threatened with euthanasia, and then the monkey needs a home. So what we tend to do is we get contacted regularly by somebody who owns a six or seven year old monkey that they can no longer care for. And in fact, there's there's a rhesus macaque who is currently in that process. We were contacted last week. He'd reached adolescence, he started to attack the guy's wife, 
it's unsafe to have him in the house. I mean, it was always unsafe to have him in the house. And he's going to be transported to a sanctuary. Thankfully, there was a spot for him. One sanctuary is going to take him temporarily and then another will build some space for him and have him there. But the problem is what then happens is, you know, these animals can live until they're in their 30s. So what happens is these, you know, already overburdened sanctuaries then take on the responsibility of these animals who are very expensive to care for properly, who come to us traumatized with all sorts of behavioral problems. They've potentially never seen a monkey before. And the sanctuaries are mopping up the mess, which is created by the lack of regulation. And I would say that that, regardless of you talking a monkey, a tiger, a lion, any of those things, that plays out across the country, across all sanctuaries. And without the legislation to ban it and do something to kind of curb the trade, then it's just going to continue happening. So I'm just thinking about the extent of it as well. Mm. And like you say, the contributing factor must be the state by state regulations on it. Is there a particular part of the country that you tend to see more and more queries from? Because I know, you know Tim was talking about Ohio and being a real hot spot for the trade in primates as well as other animals. Is there any sort of consistency with where they're coming from? Or I mean, I think there's, and this is maybe a sweeping generalisation, but in terms of the patterns we see, I think as a general rule, so for example, Texas is a good example. Texas and the kind of more Republican right-leaning states where things like, and this also plays out with conservative politics, so in the UK, so anything which threatens the right of ownership, because that's, you know, the right to peaceful enjoyment of property, all of those things. So banning ownership of something is a very political act, which is very much at odds with right-wing or right-leaning politics. So the kind of more Republican states and also, you know, Texas, for example, just people having the land. If there's more tigers in Texas than in the rest of the world or in the wild, then this is a huge, expansive place where people have huge areas of land and to be able to keep them. So I think those two factors combine. So states like here will be ones which are hotbeds for that kind of thing. And also, you know, the more quote-unquote progressive states, you know, California, uh, Massachusetts, all of those, they're always more likely to have legislation to control and prohibit these things. And they're going to be more easily accepted than in the in the other states. And, you know, that's exactly what we've seen with the UK government when we're talking about banning circuses. The fact that that ban went through on a conservative government is really impressive because that's something fundamental to the principles of conservative politics is, you know, individualism and also the right to do what, not what you want, but, you know, to live your life without interference from the state. Whereas obviously kind of left wing politics is perhaps less that way leaning because the state takes more of a a key role, both in terms of benefiting people theoretically and, and otherwise. So I think that's probably a big factor in it. Obviously, there are parallels there between the political right and uh, concepts of ownership and rights and things like that. But in the United States, it almost seems like it's gone that step further with this constitutional right to do whatever. I mean, we're seeing it now. It's my constitutional right to not wear a face mask in public. It's my constitutional right to do this and to do that. And it can be incredibly damaging. And obviously, I guess you're on the at the sanctuary there and with the work that you're doing, you are on the receiving end of the results of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there will, and there will also obviously be all of the individual animals we don't hear about. You know, I had somebody contact me who obviously hadn't read up about what work we do, who emailed me the other day and asked me how they could get a baby monkey and if we'd sell one to her. Um, and I think, you know, just the, <laughs> it's the numbers game as well in terms of the population of the states and the landmass and all of that, it's just, it's on a completely different scale 
to, you know, the UK. And it's founded upon those principles. It's founded upon principles of, you know, freedom to do what you like and not have that curtailed. And I think that, you know, the whole country has been founded on those principles. And in some ways, that's a wonderful thing. In many ways, it's a wonderful thing, but it, it certainly manifests when we're talking about animals who are obviously considered property under the law. If they weren't considered property under the law, we might be it might be a different conversation. But while animals remain property, which is going to be for a long time, potentially forever, then um, they will always be classed under that. You know, I have a right to do what I want with my property. Where would I get a baby monkey from, by the way, Liz? Not from me. <laughs> um, Online sales are obviously making things uh, really difficult for anybody trying to kind of track and trace it. And there's been a lot of work done in terms of online sales of exotic animals. Um, and that's certainly a place where we've seen this blow up because it means that, you know, somebody could have a couple of pet monkeys, they have a baby and just, you know, Joe Bloggs, who happened to have a pet monkey, is suddenly a wildlife trader, basically, mm. um, because that, you know, that's what it is. I mean, it's legal wildlife trade, but it is still wildlife trade. So the online forums have got quite a lot to answer for that. Yeah, it's something I'm doing a little bit of work on at the moment as well. And it's terrifying how easy it is to access mm. wild animals on social media. Yeah, it's quite staggering the scale of the problem. And it's only when you scratch the surface and start looking at it, you realize how pervasive and available it is. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, I can't remember what I was researching at the time, obviously something to do with exotic pets. But one thing that I hadn't realized in many years of working on this issue is the whole concept of male order animals, where animals, are, and particularly, you know, reptiles and amphibians, are, they're literally sent through the mail. And some mm. companies have this sort of disclaimer that if your animal arrives dead, we'll replace them. And that just blew my mind. You know, I was kind of like, okay, I've seen everything now. And then I saw that and I was like, wow, that's that's like a whole new level of commodifying living beings. Utterly bizarre and horrible, you know. That's so strange, isn't it? I recently saw something linked to that with a very famous Russian experiment where I think it's in Siberia or some remote part of Russia where they are, well, they're trying to tame foxes. And this has been going on for a number of years, very famous experiment. And mm-hmm. you can now buy one of those boxes and get it shipped to anywhere in the world if you like. And somebody will take care of it and ship it out to you. It's just, I mean, this, the actual welfare of these animals is terrible, but it's, it's yeah. shocking how easy it is. This was actually, um, it's a byproduct of fur farming, that, Matt. It's the fur farms that breed the silver foxes and the yes, Arctic foxes exactly. there. Yeah. And what they found was that by breeding the more juvenile characteristics, yeah. which in turn kept the softer fur they were finding that the juvenile behaviors the tameness was increasing as well yeah. so sadly the fur industry has now <laughs> created a whole nother yeah. pile of shit for animals and yeah. because they have, they've got so many of them they have to afford their upkeep so they're starting to sell them in order to fund the research as well which is a very well documented research my partner looks a lot into canine behavior and many of the reference books she has reference that study but there's no reference about the welfare obviously the welfare implications involved in it um, mm. i mean something i'm really interested Liz, to ask you mm. is as we talked at the start about your very career and, and you've done so many amazing things harry and i are really passionate with this podcast about helping people like yourself at one point in your career and harry said and myself who were desperate to get into this industry get them to understand maybe the sort of skills or the different avenues you can go into mm-hmm. that is separate from 
knowing every fact about an animal. I was just thinking your experience of going all around the world, Palestine, you know, we talked about in South America, you've been in the UK and, and now you're in Texas. How do you think that's helped shape who you are and your approach to animal welfare and the work you do? Um, I think in terms of getting into it, one of the things I've actually been really grateful of, much as I kind of started this by saying, you know, I was working in a, in a PR company and I wasn't happy there. I was doing a lot of project management work and also, you know, just things that you, you're you involved in, presentations, you're involved in, you know, writing for business. And, you know, it was a leading company and you proofread your stuff. You didn't make mistakes. You, it had to be really high quality. And I think the business skills I learned by working for an organization like that, I've actually taken with me. And there's still skills that I learned there, including things like public speaking and including things like, yeah, being able to write a decent press release, being able to communicate with the media, which is, you know, incredibly important if you're a campaigner. So there's a lot of kind of quote unquote real life skills, which people perhaps wouldn't realize are hugely useful in the not-for-profit sector and for working with animals. And I think some of the time as a sector, we sometimes lack those skills because we do always prioritize, you know, if we're hiring, we'll prioritize somebody who's just put in all the hours working directly with animals. When actually a lot of the time we as as a sector need to think outside the box a little bit and think, you know, what other transferable skills can we bring in? Because we do sometimes lack that. So I think there's kind of always a way in. And again, because the only job isn't being a vet. So there are campaigners and there are PR people and there are marketers and there are fundraisers and there are admin and operations. So everything you find in a well-run business is transferred over to the not-for-profit section. I think people often just don't realize it. I think it is a challenge to get in because often jobs are sought after. So when something is advertised, then, you know, when we advertise for a caregiver job, which we've just done, then, you know, I think we've had about 20 or 30 applicants in the first four days. Hmm. So I would say the other thing that people should perhaps do, which is difficult because it means you have to be in a relatively privileged position to be able to do it, but to try and get volunteer experience, even if that means, you know, letter writing, contacting NGOs who you think are doing good work and see if there's anything you can do from home. Obviously, everyone's doing everything from home right now. But if and when the world goes back to normal, you know, getting hands-on experience, volunteering at Sanctuary, if you're able to do that, if that's the route you want to go down. Because me as somebody who now hires staff and has done for a number of years, what I look for on a CV are the skills that that person has and some sort of commitment to animals. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have worked within the NGO sector for an animal organization for, you know, four or five years to get a look in. But if you can show in whatever way you have this commitment, then that will get you certainly in front of my team for an interview. And then to answer your other question about how working in different places has influenced my view. I think it's helped me look at things from a different perspective. I think when you're, I mean, you know, I'm a white English woman from a pretty privileged background. I've been vegan for 16 years. Um, I've worked in the animal welfare sector for that amount of time. And I have a particular view about how I would like animals to be treated. I think being able to work in different places, in different cultures, in different countries, different languages, has allowed me to appreciate that what my standard is, isn't necessarily everyone else's standard. And that what I would like the standard to be isn't always achievable because life gets in the way and there's other things to take into consideration. 
So I think trying to put yourself in other people's shoes, I think is one of the most important things you can do if you're working internationally with animals, because if you go in and I start working in the occupied Palestinian territories, like why is everyone not vegan? Then I'm going to last about five minutes and that will be the end of my time working there. You've got to meet people where they are basically and work with them to work out what's possible and where you can go with it. Couldn't agree more, Liz. That's Mm. such an important point. It's something Matt and I talk about a lot, the human attitudes and behaviors and uh, the prejudgment of people that going into a culture that you don't understand and expecting rules and understandings and perceptions and attitudes to be the same. And if they're not, then almost using that as an excuse to blame or finger point. And it's never helpful. It's never a way to achieve a goal. I I remember when I was first starting out in animal welfare, my first ever trip overseas, I was working at an animal shelter in the UK and we did an overseas trip to a shelter in Turkey. And I had never been anywhere other than the UK from an animal welfare perspective. And we went to this shelter and it was, even by the things that I have seen since, it was an absolute shithole. It was terrible. The dogs were in an appalling condition. There was fleas everywhere, caked with feces, a couple of dead dogs in the corner. It was was awful. Before we went out there, my Western white privileged thought was, well, we've got a shelter here with potentially three or 400 dogs. I think we should go out there with three or 400 collars, which was just the most stupid, ridiculous, ill-considered thought, a suitcase full of dog collars when there's feces and dead dogs and things like that. Well, needless to say, we brought those collars back again. But it's a perfect example of the naivety that many people have. And it's like, well, why are you doing it this way? Surely these dogs just need collars. Well, no, actually, first of all, the the dead ones probably need to be removed. And and maybe we could think of doing something about the fleas and the feces. But collars is good. Maybe collars could be third on the list. I think we want to feel fancy, though. So, you know. It's true. These dogs had nothing else going for them. So at least give them a pretty collar so they could feel better about themselves. It's a very, very important point, though. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, Liz, about, again, about the travels that you've had. There must be some real standout moments for you when you kind of think about the places you've been and the experiences you've had. When you think back on it, if you had to kind of recollect, are there any particular moments that you've had in the places that you've been where you go, wow, this was incredible. I feel so privileged to have seen this or what a amazing or beautiful or heartbreaking or happy experience that was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I think about those, I've just been so lucky with the stuff that I've had the opportunity to do. I think there's Two times in Colombia, which really stand out for me. And the first one was, I just mentioned it earlier, was the first time I saw woolly monkeys in the wild. And I cried like a baby. And that was, we'd gone, there were about, I don't know, there were about 15 of us. And we were going out to an area of forest which hadn't been wrecked before. There was no one living there. It was an area which wasn't really served by a reliable water source, enough to kind of support human communities. It was called the Purite, and it was up north from where we were. We were right on the banks of the Amazon, and you had to go a good few hours in a boat to get to this point. So we were wrecking this space for a good release site for some of the monkeys who were being cared for at sanctuaries run by a very dear friend of mine, Sarah Bennett. 
So a bunch of us had gone out. There was me, Sarah, John and Simon. Simon was the young nephew of one of my colleagues and he'd come along to get his first experience working in the forest. And we were basically going to do this recce to look at the land. We, we just we were kind of on a trip, just wandering around the forest, looking to see whether the monkeys could live there. So as you can imagine, it was a pretty nice trip anyway. We all and we started at a base camp and then we filtered off into smaller groups. We'd go off for like a couple of days at a time, make camp somewhere. And we were effectively trying to find out if there were woolly monkeys in that area and trying to find a space where they were kind of woolly monkey adjacent, but we weren't going to be releasing them into a space where there was an existing troop, but there was a troop close enough that they might be able to join them when we release them. Anyway, so we were out that day, beautiful day. We made, you know, we made camp at night and then the mother of all storms started. And as you can imagine, if you haven't been there, storms in the Amazon are serious. And it ended up, so the four of us, there was literally one space under one of our mosquito nets that wasn't just basically a river. So we ended up, quote unquote, sleeping. We were all wide awake. The river running through our camp, it was utterly miserable. I've never been so cold in my life. I've never been so wet in my life. I've never had to lie so close to my colleagues in my life. It was just uncomfortable for everyone. So we woke up in the morning, all pretty miserable. And John went off to go and get wood for the fire. The wood was all soaking. And then he he was just coming back and I heard him kind of drop all the wood with this clatter. And he just shouted, Chorocos, which is the local name for woolly monkeys. And it was like, oh, my God, I think I'd lived there at that point about six months. And I spent a lot of time in the forest. I'd never seen these monkeys. And we off we go. We pull our boots on. We're in our soaking pajamas and everything. And we go. And because it wasn't inhabited by people, the monkeys, they weren't scared of us. They were just interested. So spent 10 or 15 minutes. They got caught in the storm as well. They were all kind of bedraggled. And they'd all obviously stopped for the night. There was a huge female with a baby on her back who kind of came down to a lower level and just kind of stared at me curiously. And we just got to stand there looking at them for like 15 minutes and then they went on their way. And that was just magical, absolutely magical. Wow. Yeah, I'll never forget that. It was awesome. Um, The second standout thing from Colombia, I would say, and this again speaks to the whole white privilege thing that we talked about. So a lot of my stuff that I did was surrounding education, but not in the sense, you know, (laughs) The white English girl went out to go and teach the indigenous people how to look after the forest, um, which a lot of projects do do. And it's just terrible and ineffective and pointless. But my work was kind of around helping to facilitate projects that the communities we were working with wanted. So we worked with a Takuna community called Mokagua, which was based right on the banks of the Amazon. So the, the Takuna people used to live in what's known as Malokas, which were these communal houses where a number of different families would live. The communal houses were dotted probably like five kilometers or so apart, and they would create kind of a chagra, which is like their little farmed harvesting area and grow sort of fruit and veg and stuff like that. And then they would hunt for their food. And in terms of environmentally, it didn't degrade the environment because everybody was spaced out. Then in the 60s or 70s, the Colombian government basically encouraged the indigenous communities to gather in what we would consider communities. So, you know, where everybody lives in houses in the same space. What that meant was then there was a bigger concentration of people, which obviously put pressure on local resources, on spaces to create these harvesting places, on and particularly on large-bodied mammals. So a lot of our work was working with the communities to create sustainable livelihoods to help the local populations of animals recover because it would reduce the reliance on hunting. So there was that. 
But what it also meant that because the families no longer lived in Malokas, that the younger generation had lost what that meant. They didn't know what a Maloka was and what the purpose was. And the elders in the community were the last generation to still live in them. So they still had the language. They would have grown up in these Malokas. So Mokagwa had built this beautiful community Maloka because they wanted to kind of keep that tradition alive. So they built it and it was gorgeous. And then nobody went to it. It was kind of a little bit out of the way. And so they approached us and they said, how can we engage the kids with this? Because it's a huge part of their cultural heritage and we want them to be part of it and we want them to appreciate it. They don't know what it is. It has no meaning for them. So together we devised this program, which again, we just facilitated it. We weren't doing any of the kind of educational input. And we took every child from the local primary school to the Maloka um, and with them, we took some of the abuelas and abuelas, the grandparents, the leaders of the community, the elders. And we had a day where the kids did participatory videos. So the elders would tell traditional stories. We cooked traditional food. We went around and, uh, you know, they talked about growing up in the Malokas and what it meant. And we did an exercise with the kids before we went, which was depending on how old they were, if they could write, we asked them to write about what the Maloka meant to them. And if they were too little to do that, we asked them to draw pictures of what they thought. Pretty much without exception, every child drew a picture of a house with windows and a door, as we'd imagine a house, and just sort of said things like, you know, the Malokas for the old people and didn't really know anything about it. And then when we came back, we repeated the exercise and all the kids did these beautiful drawings. They did like all the animals around. They were talking about the Maloka being important for their culture and it's something for everyone and it's something for the Jakuna people. It was just really beautiful. And one of the funny things was the kids didn't really want to go. So we were like, come on, it's going to be fun when we get there. We had to go in canoes to get there. And it was great fun. But the second day we went... A whole bunch of the kids who came with us on the first day Skype school and turned up in their own canoes because they wanted to do it again. And that was genuinely just one of the, I'm still so proud of that project and it just makes me happy. I've still got some of the videos that the kids made and they were just wonderful, really wonderful. Oh, that sounds incredible. What an amazing experience. I'm really interested as well, Liz, while you're talking about young people and, and education, about the work you did in Palestine is something I'm, we spoke very briefly with Brian Faulkner about the impact traumatic events, conflict has upon young people's relationship with animals, uh, particularly when they resettle in an area. And I know you did some amazing work yep. with the Palestine Animal League. And I just wondered whether you, you mind sharing mm-hmm. the impact that conflict has had upon the local communities or some of the areas and their relationships with the animals around them and then the work you maybe did to try and address that with obviously the other members of the league sure um yeah absolutely so the the organization was a locally run organization um and i was kind of brought in really to help with development and to bring in experience on working specifically on animal welfare projects because the team had incredible experience in working in ngos and working education and all of those things but didn't have a huge amount of experience working with animals so I was brought, I met them at a conference um, I was giving a presentation and they came to me afterwards and asked if I would be interested in working with them. So that's kind of how that started. We worked together for about two, three years, I think, in total. And the whole organization was based on the premise of growing up. Many young Palestinians are growing up in refugee camps, the refugee camps that were created when they were forced off their land back in 1948. So there's been multiple generations now who've lived and died in refugee camps those children growing up in that space are surrounded by heavy militarized environment everybody knows somebody who has died 
everybody knows somebody whose house has been destroyed. Everybody has had direct experience of violence and it's potentially devastating. You know, these kids grow up. It's not that they're traumatized and moved on. It's that they're being consistently traumatized. It's this continued state of trauma because it never ends. And then how that plays out is exactly what the work of Andrew Lindsay and other people have been doing for decades, which is that when violence becomes such a normalized part of your life, then you become desensitized to it. And the anger and the fear of living with that can then obviously manifest in much higher levels of domestic violence, for example, and also abusive animals. And there was one story which the founder of the organization would tell, which was this kid was picking on this cat. I'm not sure what he was doing to him, but he was basically kind of annoying this cat. And the founder of the organization went to him and said, why are you doing that? And the kid just broke down in tears and his brother had been taken from his bed that night by the security forces and was in prison. They didn't know when he was going to get out, if he was going to get out. And that was how the kid was managing his frustrations. So that was kind of the founding principle that, interestingly, the organization was set up, yes, to help animals, but it was actually almost using animal welfare and respect for the environment and care for animals as a means for children to channel their negative experiences. Some amazing things came out of that work. One of them, which I can take no credit for, I helped with the funding to actually get it off the ground, a team of young girls. There was a program called Palestinians for Animal Welfare. And in that, university students were trained to mentor. They were given like leadership skills, mentoring, and they went through this course, which was run by the organization. They then went into schools and worked with school children to deliver projects surrounding animal welfare or the environment. One group of particularly tenacious, smart young women, they were, I think, 12 or 13 at the time. They knew they were going to university. That was their plan. They were kind of recently vegan, vegetarian, were really getting into animal rights stuff. They wanted somewhere where they could eat vegan food in the university they planned to go to. I mean, these girls were thinking really big. So they went as a group and they spoke to the dean and basically said, hey, there's this space on campus. Will you let us deliver this project? So they actually got permission to set up the first vegan restaurant in Palestine, and they did it. It was astounding, absolutely astounding. This was a project which was established by four young girls who were 14 years old and supported by a university student who at the time I think was 19, and they did it. And I was there on the opening day, and it was just fabulous. I could not have been more proud of them. That was the Sudfa project, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I heard you speaking about that once before and read up on it. It's such an incredible story in such a situation like that to set something up that was so unique and so unexpected and use it for such an important purpose. Really, really great. The other exciting thing that came out of that, you know, we're obviously trying to think of ways. We did it through crowdfunding. And so we're trying to think of ways to engage people more widely because it's not like people, you know, most of the time people will support a local vegan restaurant because they can go and visit it when it opens. But very few people were going to be able to go to the West Bank to go to this restaurant. And so we worked with particularly the women in one of the refugee camps to create a recipe book. And we basically took down some of the traditional Palestinian recipes We didn't need to kind of veganize them because a lot of the Middle Eastern diet is by default veganist. You know, it's kind of 
based around pulses and lentils and all of those things. So it's not very meat heavy. So we ended up producing this recipe book, which contains all of these traditional recipes as well, which was a really wonderful thing. And the women kind of donated their their recipes, donated their knowledge, which is also really powerful, you know, like the culture of food and passing that down. So that was another really lovely thing, which ended up supporting the establishment of that restaurant. Wow, it's incredible. So inspiring. Bringing you back to your current role, Liz, what is the future at Born Free USA? What are the things that you're really passionate about and the organization are really interested in tackling? What are you going to be looking at in the future? So my kind of my role is has got two main areas. I'm responsible and the director of the primate sanctuary. So it's the largest primate sanctuary in the US. We've got over 450 monkeys here. So in terms of our plans for the sanctuary for the future, we've been working a lot in the last few years on kind of improving our internal infrastructure, growing our team, you know, building new enclosures, all of that. And our plans for the coming years for the sanctuary is I genuinely believe we are a centre for excellence, but we haven't historically done too much work in outreach and providing training and kind of internships and things like that so that's something that we're looking at for here and that we're really keen to develop because honestly I have the most the team here is incredible they're incredibly dedicated they know the monkeys so well they know what the monkeys need they do yeah they go above and beyond and so our plan for the future of the sanctuary is to kind of establish a really effective internship program potentially caregiver exchanges with other sanctuaries both here and overseas because we want to kind of share we want to share our experience and also obviously learn from other places but to have a more outward looking focus that's something that I'm really keen to do here and then in terms of Born Free as a wider organization the issues we work on are very similar to the Born Free Foundation in the UK we are focused around you know animal captivity and particularly wild animals but we've got a number of programs but a number of programs that are currently being delivered, you know, we have a program in West Africa, which is run by this amazing team who do a lot of training of local law enforcement. One of the things that they work on particularly is how to identify endangered species in order to prevent trafficking, because one of the biggest problems, it's all very well having CITES legislation, but if you are a law enforcement officer on the ground in whatever country and you don't know what a pangolin looks like, that's a very basic thing, but you know, you don't know how to differentiate between species, then that legislation, which is designed to protect animals and prevent illegal trade, tends to break down. So that's some of the work they're doing out there. They're doing so much more as well, but their work is truly astounding. I would recommend anyone to have a look at our website and have a look at the West Africa work. In terms of in the States, we focus on trapping quite a lot, which is a big issue here. And we're looking to launch a big trapping campaign, hopefully next year, early next year. We're looking at exotic pet trade, as the Born Free Foundation does in the UK. We're actually working on something at the moment. My colleague is working on a report about fur farming in the US because that's something which I think here in the US people often think either happens in the Far East or it happens in Europe. And there's not a huge amount of awareness of fur farming in the US, which is actually quite extensive. So that's something we're looking at as well. And we really also want to do more work publicly on zoos. Obviously, that's the founding basis of the Born Free Foundation. And as its kind of sibling organization, that's something that we really want to nail down captivity. You know, it's a really big issue in the States because the States is such a huge country. And, you know, we've got similar kind of thing to the UK with the Biaza Zoo. So there's the accredited zoos and then there's endless roadside zoos, which for us, they're on a sliding scale. There is no good zoo, but there are places where um, the conditions really are 
terrible. So we want to really work to raise awareness around animals in captivity more generally. It's going to keep you busy. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And thinking more generally, Liz, when you think about your experience in animal welfare and all the things that you've seen and, and are working on and your knowledge of the progress as things are happening, what are your hopes for the future? Where do you think or hope things are going to go in a more general sense in the coming years for animal welfare? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm really intrigued by projects such as those that are being run by Stephen Wise, the Non-Human Rights Project. Mm -hmm. That is potentially a game changer. So the Non-Human Rights Project, um, for anyone who doesn't know, is looking basically to establish legal personhood for certain animals. So what that means is, I've talked a little bit about on this podcast, that animals are globally considered property which means we can do pretty much anything we like to them within reason, you know, within the kind of parameters of various welfare laws. The Non-Human Rights Project is looking to move the marker on what an animal is in a legal status to kind of give them rights in their own right. And it's not, you know, people are, oh, you want them to be able to drive and it's ridiculous having animals to have rights. They don't need rights. They're not talking about things like that. They're talking about things like the right to life, the right to not be held captive. So the kind of fundamental rights that we hold dear, that's what they are trying to establish. If something like that could be successful, then I think it would be an absolute game changer for everything. I have no idea what the world would look like under a system which recognised animals as other than property. I would love to see what that looks like. So that's something that I'm watching very keenly and I'm really intrigued to see where it goes. I think something that is heartening is that we're seeing a lot more people being more sympathetic and having more empathy for animals. I'm pretty much hoping that after two months on lockdown, people see zoos differently. Because, you know, you constantly hear this idea that, oh, you know, animals are really well treated in zoos. It's like living in a hotel. They have all their needs met. Okay, after two months of being stuck in your house, tell me, tell me how nice it is to have your needs met, but not be able to go anywhere. So I'd like to see that be something positive that maybe comes out of this awful pandemic that's happening right now. I think one of my issues, I'd like to say that my outlook is really hopeful, but it, dep- it all depends on economies. I think, you know, when capitalism thrives, then animal exploitation will automatically grow with it. You know, we've seen an increase in the use of primates and experimentation in the US because at times of plenty, there's more money to invest in those things. So smash capitalism? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's difficult I think under the yeah under the current framework in which we live and you know in a you know framework which also exploits people and the environment and all of that we are seeing steps forward in some ways but I'm intrigued to see how it plays out That was amazing, wasn't it, Matt? That was such a great chat with Liz. Yeah, Liz is such an awesome person. She has got quite possibly up there with Brian Faulkner, one of our guests on a previous episode, the most air miles of any human being that I've ever met in my life. But she's just done some amazing work all around the world. She's dedicated herself to animal welfare. And if we're going to help and change things in order to improve animal welfare, we're going to need people as dedicated as Liz. And I just, I love how she gives some insights about the sort of skills that people listening can try and maybe think about or even their approach to animal welfare and campaigns as well and recruitment and all these different things because there are important things 
and I just really like that, you know, and really eloquent and just obviously what's mm. what she does. And Absolutely. That came across so well because it wasn't just about, I mean, her insights were so valuable, like you said, you know, her perspective and her journey mm. and things like that, which we can both relate to and clearly have, but also her passion. And you could definitely tell the excitement when she was telling the stories about when she first saw the woolly monkeys in, uh, in the Amazon and her pride in that group of girls in Palestine and that vegan cafe was just, it was just amazing. You can really tell that she loves what she does and she's hugely passionate. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a real sucker for people that go down a certain path and they just, they know it's not right for them. Like Liz did when she was working in London and she touches on that. And mm. a lot of people carry on like that, even if they're not necessarily happy. It's so, I always feel really weird saying this word, but I think it's so brave. When people, you know, they're going down a path, they often probably have security and other things in their life, and then they decide to change it in order yeah. to go down a different road. And there's always people who will tell you not to do that. But not only did Liz change and do that and put herself out there, she also at the same time did an open university degree, and I'm doing one of them at the moment, and I know how hard they are. And for her mm. to do that and, and to get that expertise, She's reaping the rewards now and, and everything she's doing now from recently becoming program director at Born Free in the USA, she deserves totally. You know, it's really inspiring, I think. And I hope other people find it as inspiring as I did. Yeah, absolutely. So Harry, next week. Yes. Next week. Oh. I know. Our guest next week. Just first of all to people, next week is going to be our last episode for the first season of Animal Chat. We're just going to take a month or so off, Harry, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to take a, a month or so off. There'll be a four-week or so break. So, yeah, end of season one, but we're already building up to season two. Oh, the guests we've got in oh, season two. Oh, my God. My God. Have you yeah. seen, you know who we've got in season two? Oh, I I do. Do you? you? know who we've got in season two? We've Go got, on. so she's the daughter of Stephen Tyler. No, um, no, no, she, no, Harry, Harry, <laughs> We'll tell you about season two over the coming weeks and the guests that we've got lined up, which are pretty exciting. But forget about season two. We've still got the final episode of season one coming up. Yeah, and, and I think you should take this one away because oh, in this podcast, I've spoken to people that personally inspired me and shaped my beliefs and approach to working with animals and just view of the world. Next week, Harry, you get to speak to somebody who's done that for you. Who've we got? Next week, we have David Meech. Now, David Meech isn't maybe as high profile a name as some people in animal welfare, but the work that he's done has been the foundation to so much work. He's been working in animal welfare since the 1960s, and he works on large carnivores, but primarily since then, he's been working on wolf ecology and wolf conservation in the United States. And he what he doesn't know about wolf conservation and wolf ecology isn't worth knowing. The man is an absolute legend. He studied wolf behavior in the wild. His work has been involved in the reintroduction of wolves and the development of legislative protection for wolves in the United States, but also he's worked around the world. Wherever there are wolves around the world, in Europe, as well as North America, he has been involved in projects and working with organizations to promote the protection of wolves. But what he maybe is equally well known for is his theories that he himself debunked, and we talk a lot about this on the podcast, mm. of dog behavior regarding wolf behavior. And this idea of alpha males and alpha dogs and pack leaders 
And so in the 1960s and 70s, he comes up with this theory about alpha dogs and dominance and pack leaders that was all based on studies of wolves in captivity. And then he goes out and sees wolves in the wild and goes, well, that was wrong. Got that completely wrong. My previous theory was a load of rubbish. Going to debunk it. Actually, dominance and pack theory, not necessarily dominance, but pack theory and alpha males and things like that, not true. Not true anymore. Talk about Brave, like you mentioned just before with Liz and Chad, to have done years of research and then have the integrity and honesty to look back on your research and go, God, I'm completely wrong, completely wrong, going to rethink it. And yet, and this is the thing, and you know this to be true as well, Matt, mm. this idea of pack hierarchy and alpha dogs sadly still perpetuates it's something that he came up with he debunked and yet there are plenty of dog behaviorists out there that still cite this as something that's real whereas in fact it isn't and so that's something that we i think those of us in dog welfare and dog behavior still need to come to terms with an address but next week's podcast we're hearing it from the from the horse's or wolf's mouth oh my god honestly you are honestly sometimes i just sit back and marvel at how you do that i don't know how you come up with some of these all of that aside he was so incredible to talk to he's an absolute animal welfare hero of mine i have followed really? his work for many many years and he was such a joy to speak to so much experience such a wealth of knowledge there and for somebody as senior and respected and experienced as him to come on to our podcast and, and speak yeah. to the two of us that, that was that was pretty amazing wasn't it yeah it was amazing it was so when harry and i got the email to say he would come on we were so excited yeah. it was one of those should we try because like you said harry the name might not ring a bell he might not be instantly as well known to most people but he's had such a huge impact on the day-to-day -day training and behavior management of dogs uh, i get to speak to lots of very well-known behaviorists who i know will all be inspired by david meach so please check into the podcast next week look out for it it is one not to be missed absolutely where can people find the podcast oh my god harry where can they find it well first of all Go to our website, animalchat.podbean.com. You can find us there. Links to that are on our social media pages as well if you can't be bothered to write that down. They can also find us on Spotify. They can find us on iTunes, Google Play. You know where they can find us, Matt? Anywhere where there's podcasts, we are there. And you know what? Where they're listening to this podcast with yeah. us saying this, yeah, that's where they can find all the other podcasts. Just look out next week and it'll be there. It'll be there. And what do we want people to do? We want them to share it. We want them to subscribe. Give us a review, please, on iTunes. You know, there's only so many reviews we can get family members to do. So, um, without <laughs> embarrassing. So, um, yep. Yeah, and as always, get in touch with us on social media. If you've got any guest ideas for season two, I mean, we've already got a cracking list, but if there's somebody you think is, has got an amazing story, please let us know. Get in touch and we'll either give you a thumbs up or just tell you to never contact us ever again. Yeah, one of those two things is going to happen. We're people. We've not got time to deal with fools. <laughs> but we still love you, listeners. Yeah, we do. We do. Until next week, thank you very much for listening and look forward to seeing you all next week. Cue the outro. Do we have an outro? We do have an outro. It's the same as the intro. Does it happen now or does it happen at the end of the actual episode with Liz? Uh, 
it happens when I decide to edit it in. So, you know, I might decide to just cut us off mid-sentence.